1935, the Lions win the NFL championship. The Detroit Tigers take the World Series. The Red Wings bring home Lord Stanley's Cup. Joe Lewis begins his rise to world domination. This transforms the Motor City into Detroit, city of champions. There you go. And with the crack of the bat, we are off. Thought of the leather, Jamie. <laughs> we're into boxing now. <laughs> that is it. Yeah. It's uh, Detroit City of Champions, a, a trilogy of books written by... Charles Avison. And uh, I'm Jamie Flanagan, and we're uh, getting deep into it. Uh, checking out the story. In a new um, studio. In a, in, a, in a new space. Yeah. Love we're the kinda, new studio. We're, yeah. I'm kinda pretty happy with uh, how things are coming together here. So uh, if anything goes awry, it's because this is actually the inaugural is it? Uh, broadcast awesome, here. Yeah, this is, uh, I did a test run with the guy who owned the building um, kind of interviewed him a little bit and talked about the building but uh, this is the first actual podcast that's uh, it's gone, cool we have like online. security downstairs yeah did you have to sign in did you have yeah, to sign in take yeah. the elevator up she's nice nice girl yeah. oh my god security. she's sweet I did, it was raining one day and, and she's like she walked me out to my car with her umbrella oh I my know god what, I know this she's is full like, on concierge here. It, it really yeah. seriously they, you they call do. up to get a little you know, dinner reservations or something you mm. got a con- no okay take a little the sandwich out of the vending machine okay She'll run it up. <laughs> Concierge here. And yeah, yeah. That was pretty sweet, though. So no, that's great. I love the setup. It's a great. It's it's great, yeah, man. Thanks. So I think it looks pretty good. Great work setting it up. See that on the videos. If anybody wants to, uh, you know, make some noise themselves, we're always helping people launch podcasts with yeah. uh, Podcast Detroit. Just reach out to me. All the links are all over the things uh, because people. Uh, if you look at the show notes, um, you can like and subscribe, follow along wherever you wherever you're listening uh, or watching uh just follow like subscribe leave a comment uh we enjoy the hell out of when people leave oh, comments. oh it's great we get some so, great comments too yeah. and it's like uh, the family members that have been reaching yeah, out yeah we've it's had been, family members some of the people we talked about it's reaching touching. out it's really it's, cool uh, yeah. it's it's uh it's moving so uh i mean people care and uh are appreciating what we're doing and so we appreciate you taking the time and and being with us so uh detroit city of champions like it wherever you find it um we need some youtube likes though i know we need to build um, it up I because mean, it's slowly but surely I've, I've heard that it takes a, a little time to build it up yeah because you have to have going. a certain number of uh, subscribers to get a custom you know because right now it's just youtube.com slash yeah. gobbledygook gobbledygook, gobbledygook. <laughs> I want to, you know youtube.com slash Detroit City of Champions sure. but you have to have X number of people before you can do that so hey X people yeah. <laughs> help out a little bit it takes time you know yeah. what I mean um, maybe we can break some sound bites out of it sure and, um, but yeah if cut you, it up a little but, bit like, subscribe, wherever uh, fine podcasts are, are sold. Uh, talking about Joe Lewis, right? We've been, yeah, this uh, is, this, yeah, we're, we're into jo- episode three of... Episode, uh, yeah, part three of the Joe Lewis section, episode 40 overall. We've done 40 episodes Yeah, so can you far. believe it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's we made rolling, it that man. long. These two, yeah. these two uh, weary travelers yeah. we called ourselves yeah. earlier. Yeah, no, we've been doing, we've been, it's, it's great because we get to like kind of really dive into some, you know, so, you know, take our time through it, which is cool. And, uh, you know, like to what we're talking about today is a perfect example because like when I started doing the notes for today's show, I was like, you know, usually when I tell this story of Joe Lewis, the, you know, the, the intro part of Joe Lewis, it's almost, it's a, a lot of it's warp speed ahead. You just go, oh, he did this and then he did that and then he did this and then you, and even when you're watching a documentary, you know, like the, probably the most, probably the best document, you know, the, the best existing documentary was HBO um, did a, a 
documentary on Joe Lewis is probably the best. There, I mean, there's no movie. There's no A-list celebrity movie. Right. You know, there's like no. like Jamie Foxx did a movie with about Muhammad Ali. You know, there's other boxers. Jamie Foxx or Will Smith? I'm sorry, Will. It was Will Smith. Yeah, Will Smith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Foxes did everybody else. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. No, it was. Yeah, Will Smith. Yeah. Yeah, Will. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, but then, but then there's like. No, 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 no. You're right. You're right. And that, but there's been other documentaries made about boxers. You know, there's and you know there's all you know they've um in but Joe Lewis, who's one of the most influential, if not like the most influential boxer ever. Um, you know, there's been nothing. The only real legitimate film or any type of you know movie type. Work done on him was uh, there's an HBO uh, documentary done um, which was pretty good. It, it again it kind of warps speed it, it warps speed ahead through 1935 for him. Yeah. And so, um, but even that when they talk about you know his early life and you know what we're going to be talking about today, it's like they covered in like in like 10 seconds. So you know, and so that's what's cool is we get to actually take our time and kind of dive into a little bit more detail about some of his early life and what led him to you know that's that's one of my favorite things about people, especially people that come from nothing mm-hmm. you know Joe Lewis is the ultimate example of somebody that started off with like there's he was the last person if you like knew Joe Lewis when he was 12 15 17 years old right he is like literally the last person on earth you would ever expect to rise up to be like one of the great the champion, not just the, the 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 Negro League of Black Champions, did the, the heavyweight, yeah, the, the heavy yes, champion of, of the world. Yeah, and I say that he's one of the most influential and important people of the entire 20th century. Not right. just boxer, but just people who lived in the 20th century. His impact, and not just you know, we're making a case. You know, this entire segment of the Joe Lewis, this whole thing we're doing with Joe Lewis, you know, as is, as per the title. The most important, you know, the the greatest individual. I, I'm gonna, the whole point of this Joe Lewis segment is not just to tell a story, but we're going to lay out a case for why 1935 Joe Lewis was the greatest individual season in American sport history. And you're just rising up from the ashes, as it were. Um, yeah, but but how, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. We talked about we were talking about movies a little bit, uh, and then there's the one really well known movie, the Cinderella. Cinderella. Yeah, there's a whole movie on James Cinderella, Braddock. Yeah, Cinderella Man. Cinderella, Cinderella Man. Yeah. Cinderella, and how does how does he cross paths? We'll get to that. And so it, that yeah, it so, crossed in thirty five. That that movie happens in nineteen thirty five. So, but Joe Lewis is so much bigger. He's ten times bigger. He's a hundred times and bigger. And Joe's story is so much. Yeah, it, just to give it a quick example, a teaser to just to, and I, I actually like to use Cinderella Man as an example. I like to use that movie as an example because in nineteen thirty five, it was Joe Lewis. There was an award that's called the Most Outstanding Athlete of the Year. Mm-hmm. It was given out by the Associated Press, and it could go to any athlete in any sport. And so and so uh, James Braddock, who is the sub who's the subject of the movie Cinderella Man, he had three votes for the for the Associated Press most outstanding athlete of the year. Joe Lewis, he has 187. Yeah. 187 he won and he wins it. You know, he wins right. this award. So so that so 1935 was Joe Lewis's year. And so it's yet they made a movie about Cinderella Man, hundred million dollar Hollywood movie. Russell Crowe. It's a great movie. I'm not trying to take anything away from the accomplishments of J- oh, yeah. James Braddock, but if James, but if this is a hundred million dollar movie for jo- for James Braddock, you know what I mean? If this is an A list Hollywood hundred million dollar movie for what James Braddock did in 1935, yeah. Joe Lewis at the time was got the Associated Press most outstanding athlete here in the same sport as James Braddock. Where's his movie? Where's his hundred million dollar Hollywood movie? Yeah. No, and it shouldn't just be a hundred million dollar movie. It should be like a hundred, like a you know a 
billion dollar movie or something, you know, right. because like what he did was literally, I mean, just from that you know mathematical equation, you know, what's the Jamie? What's one hundred eighty seven divided by three? You know, it was at least ninety times, you know, seventy times better, you know, like bit more bigger. So that's that's what I'm saying. And so, but we're really going to take our time. Yes, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we will absolutely. Yeah, but the teaser to that component is, you know, a lot of people have seen Cinderella Man, and it's like if you love that movie, you love what James Braddock did in 1935. Wait till you hear what Joe Lewis did. That's why the entire that's why the entire arc of of this Joe Lewis component is to make a case for why 1935 with Joe Lewis was the greatest individual season in American sport history. That's what the component. Yeah, I think so. So Joe had a lot of things to to, to face and overcome. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Jack Johnson was... The shadow of Jack Johnson. Yeah, that was number one. And and he was so flamboyant and he was so out there and and he he, he angered people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. um, Which made Joe's job and Joe's accomplishments that... Impossible, yeah. I mean, you know, after it was all said and done, it made it unbelievable, you know, incredible. Yeah. But at the time of which we're talking, which is, you know, the shadow, he's like growing up in the shadow of Jack Johnson... It, like the you know that it made it his his opportunity even more difficult because you know that's the we'd already talked about this major obstacle of the fact that you know they're like you know would, you know Jack Johnson having sort of scandalized you know the media was like you know no it basically was that it created a, a mentality that in an already segregated era that no black man will ever have a chance to do this to us again right you know so it made the situation with Joe Lewis even worse there was you know there was several we already talked about uh, Harry Wills and Sam Langford a couple of these great black boxers. Who were had no who were completely passed over, had you know had never got their chance at the heavyweight championship because um, because you know this the, you know the line was so you know was you know there was a wall there was you know there was a you know there's a you know there's no chance they were you're not going to get a chance. All right, so where did we leave off last? So we talked about the idea of Joe Lewis and the family moving from Alabama right. to Detroit and yeah, like yeah. there's like this whole in his early childhood. Yeah, like Joe grows up in you know in the rural South where he's like everything's laid back and mm-hmm. um you know and it's like this you know it's uh um you know it's like you know, there's in that we're talking about uh, uh, Richard Back's book on Joe Lewis, which is again a tremendous book. Um, it's called The Great Black Hope. And anybody, you know, it's a fantastic read for anybody that's in it's my favorite read with regards to Joe Lewis. Do I consider Richard Back the dean of Detroit sports historians? I gotta link that in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, but you know, and he talks about he has a really great description. He's got firsthand accounts from you know Joe's relatives that grew up with him and friends that knew him as a child. Uh, and they and he just talks about how Joe like went for you know Joe was a quiet kid, shy kid, grew up um, similar to uh, similar stories to like Jack Johnson, where there's like you know a lot of times we hear this like the South was horribly segregated and all this stuff is horrible. But Joe, they don't you know, Joe he didn't have that kind of memories. Joe was like we played with the neighbor white kids and this you know it was just a, a you know it was a rural environment where everybody was just kind of you know everybody was poor and everybody was just everybody was living this you know just trying to do their best to survive you know they weren't in so um, and so that's you know Joe went from this environment where they're like you know kind of a traveling sharecropper family, you know working a, you know working these uh, you know working these farms, and they went from there to Detroit, which is like the seventh biggest city in the I think it was the seventh biggest city in the country at the time. I have the, from last week the notes. Um, you know Detroit's this me- this booming city. He's part of this uh, they call it you know the Great Migration North. Yeah, Detroit's the fourth largest city in the country at this point. One point five million people in the city at least in nineteen twenty. 
1976. Um, so Detroit's this booming metropolis, a city on the rise. The automobile industry is in full swing. And, uh, you know, he goes from this laid-back sort of country lifestyle to goes up north to Detroit, which is like he's never seen high-rise buildings. He's never seen, you know, you know these uh, these uh, you know trams that are zipping through the town and neon lights and whatever. You know, he's just never. He's never. This is a completely different environment for him. And one of the things that we sort of left off with was, uh, you know, I think there was a quote in there that we talked about, um, you know, the uh, black people in Detroit were sort of, uh, you know, segregated or, you know, they had there was a, you know, a region of the city called Black Bottom, mm-hmm. which was the area that, you know, that, that was you know predominantly black in Detroit. And uh, in, in in that uh, in within you know in this environment, um, it was you know incredibly unsanitary environment. Um, and it, we, we there's a fact there's a stat that says that deaths outnumbered births in this area. You know, and so there was like just massive thousands of people coming up. There was tons of work in Detroit, at least initially, at least prior to the Great Depression. They were saying that you know as people were coming up uh, from the south to the north, that they were grabbing people off the trains and sending them right to the factories to work because they, you know they needed the labor to you know because Detroit was that much of a boom town and so uh so anyways, and so the, like one of the things we left off was is this idea like this parallel inside within uh, you know, Black Bottom, which is you had um, you, you know you had like you know like jo- Joe's mother is a perfect example like these God fearing um, you know you know the, you know like these you know you know uh, religious types that were you know from the you know south and that and then you had you know your balance with like the family the home and then it, you know right down the street you had paradise valley which is like you know there's every type of vice that you can imagine yeah. and we had this great quote from richard back's book talking about just how you know like the stores were like fronts for like the gambling halls in it and there's you know all kinds of you know there's every manner you know it, it, in essence it was a you know you had the the choice you you know it was it was that dual Nature, which kind of is like almost a stereotype for a city, which is like the you know it's your um it's your you know do you go with like this solid you know like you know it's it's really the choice for everybody and everything not just the city but your you know your dual choice do you chase the glam the glitz and glamour and you know potentially the crime and the, the you know the the vice or do you like stay rooted to your morality and you know your god fearing ways and like what's the trade off like can you stay in the middle somehow and you know do you have to go whole hog into one or the other right. can you dance in the line between the two and so that's kind of where we left off was right. this where you know where you know you know Joe's life and a little bit in Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and um, the reason I wanted to leave off there and start today from there is because um, that was the choice that was literally the choice that Joe Lewis had and you know we talked about how you know he was he was very quiet he, he had you know speech impediment he was not you know he was he went from I think he was, he was uh, to school from third he never got past the sixth grade okay. you know he's like 15 16 years old and he's in sixth grade um, you know he's and he's just not a he's not a uh, you know school is not for him he's not good at it and he doesn't he doesn't can't focus on anything um, and he's just you know he's not made to be a book learner you know and so so they so what they did was they you know they got him into a trade school and he tried to be you know learn how to do woodworking and 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 it was the, so he went to the Bronson Trade School. 
And so, um, so and while he's there, he's like playing. He's like playing baseball, and he's getting involved with sports. Um, he's a he's a great. He was a, he was an athlete. He was a great athlete. You know, he's a great baseball player. Um, and so, um, but and so, but he's also at the same time right across. You know, this is a guy growing up where he's the seventh of eighth children. He's got you know the opportunities. He's in the middle. The, the Great Depression has finally sunk in, and the opportunities are limited. And so, you know, again, this is where you know kind of take back to the beginning of the. Episode, Episode where we're saying of all the more you know unlikely people that's ever risen to the heights that he would grow to, um, I mean, you know, put imagine Joe Lewis at this moment. You see, imagine Joe Lewis in like you know this is 1929, 1930 that we're talking about. This is you know he's he's not Joe Lewis a star at this point. He's Joe Lewis the nobody. He's yeah. a face in the crowd. He's a face. You know it, it, this. You know and so that's what I mean. Like. You know, so in, so um, you know, so he's you know liable. You know, he's he's you know involved with the same temptation as anything. Like, you know, in, in, at this point, um, what I'm trying to get to is uh, there's a little gang called the Catherine Street Gang, okay. which is like they're um, Richard Back describes yeah, the them only as way he's. It would be better if it was like the Saint Catherine Street, yeah, Street Gang. Yeah, yeah. No, this is <laughs> so. The so, there, so this Catherine Street's a street, right? right. You know, right okay. where okay. you know Joe Lewis lives, and and it's but there, you know, Joe, Richard Back just has a great description. He calls them. Like wannabe thugs or something like wannabe, you know, wannabe gang. There weren't like some, you know, purple gang or anything that was existing at this time. They weren't like this. They were just kind of like some your your local local toughs, you know. Um, and so, anyways, they at one point um, they're trying to get Joe Lewis to go get him, you know, Joe to go get you know uh, go get involved with like some kind of a criminal activity, like they're going to go like beat up somebody, rob him or something. Yeah. And so, and so they're trying to get him to go. And then this is where um, it, it, an interesting character, a guy, uh, he's a policeman named Ben Turpin, step steps in. And this is like one of these like apocryphal moments in Joe's life that he would always remember from like then on. And it's become like virtually any time you ever hear anything that's talked about Joe Lewis they there's always you know they always like it's like a center point for his young his youth no matter how short the story is there's always a mention of Ben Turpin in this okay. who is it Ben Turpin was a, a Detroit police you know he was a police officer who was like part of this black bottom group and and this is really the only quote I want to read today and because uh, uh Richard Back has such a great description of Ben Turpin okay. I wish I would have had a, a little slide for him but because uh, there is we there are pictures of him but uh anybody that's Looking, just look for do a Google search for Ben Turpin. You'll see a photo of what of uh, of the man. But uh, so in the meantime, I will read off to you this uh, fantastic quote out of again. This is from Richard Back's book, uh, The Great Black Hope with Joe Lewis. So um, say here it is right here. So uh, so. Okay, so, all right, so on one occasion, gang members tried to convince Joe to grab somebody so they could rob him. Luckily, another set of eyes was trained on Joe. They belonged to a black patrolman named Henderson Ben Turpin. With his stocky build, shaved bullet-shaped head, and brace of pearl-handled revolvers, the brutal and ignorant Turpin, a former shoeshine boy from Kentucky, commanded respect. According to Pearl Johnson, who was raised in a family of 14 on Sherman Street, he usually got it. Johnson would attend evening shows at Catherine Theater and find the off-duty Turpin holding court in the lobby. He'd sit in a chair at the entrance doors and observe people as they came in. If the line in front of the candy counter needed to move, he'd say, Hey, fella, move up there. And if someone had their hat on, he'd say, Hey, let's get that hat off. He wasn't paid for it. He was just fulfilling his role as neighborhood guardian. 
And I'm just going to go on with another little eccentricity. It's uh, Turpin's exploits, which range from acts of bravery to outright buffoonery, could fill a book. An example from his service jacket is typical of the many complaints filed against him. One spring day, officers were dispatched to break up a ruckus cause when Turpin and a female friend were caught flagrante delicto inside a car. Three passerby, suspecting that sexual intercourse was taking place, remarked, Give it to her, big boy. Turpin, Turpin, trousers and revolver in hand, held the trio of citizens at gunpoint until he was convinced that they had learned they could not get away with their smart remarks. Such complaints failed to, de- de- failed to deter Turpin, who was respectfully called Mr. Ben by weary youths. Nobody knows for sure how many people he killed during his quarter century of service. Yeah. Estimates run as high as 20, yeah. including the well-publicized shooting of a Purple Gang bodyguard, Louis Bryant, gunned down one night outside a drugstore in, on St. Antoine. Um, so I'll give another little section here. Yeah, when he wasn't manhandling loiters or chasing down thugs, Turpin, who liked his sports, enjoyed dropping in at the Brewster Recreation Center, the two-story red brick building still standing at 637 Brewster between St. Antoine and Hastings, was the was the Bernard Ginsburg branch of the Detroit Public Library until an addition and a name change converted it into the city's first community center for black citizens. It opened it opened October 25th, 1929, just 11 days after Turpin had dispatched Louis Bryant to that great speakeasy in the sky. Mm. So, and, so yeah, so... How does Turpin spell his name? T-U-R-P-I-N. Mm-hmm. Yep, so... Anyway, so this guy is like... I mean, I, I, the reason I wanted to sort of read that, you know, great little quote about him, the great little, you know, dive into who he was, mm-hmm. is because this is this guy that sort of... That guy sort of represents also what we're talking about with this, with, you know, with this Black Bottom, with this Paradise Valley, where this is a guy who... um you know he's. You know, the more you read about him, you you know you, there's a little bit more in there about him. You kind of get the the sense that this is a guy that you know he does care about this local community that he's in. There is this there is this like desire to like try to make his little area better. But at the same time, he's also like getting caught in a car with a girl naked and doing you know kill, you know you know he's he's got that dual he's got that double edged sword to his character to his personality. You see what I'm saying? I was trying to while you were talking. Yeah. I was trying to find a picture. Yeah, uh, I found two pictures of his guns, but I couldn't. Find oh, really? Them. They have his guns in there? Jeez. No, that's uh, so. Anyways, so anyways, so that so that's the idea. So um, maybe next week I'll try to find a picture from. I have a picture of him somewhere. And there's a there's a, a old timey silent film. He's a uh, big guy, and he's got a, a the hat. A, the picture a, I have is a, a in that era or slightly before that era. There's a a, a slapstick. Uh, but he's famous in Black Bottom, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's why there's a whole section there because he was famous. Yeah. And so like if Yeah, so that's what I mean. So like, you know, if you're so if you're yeah. Joe Lewis and you're yeah. about to go commit this crime or whatever you're about to do. So he and, was busting heads down. There. Absolutely. Um but he was also reaching out to people exactly. saying, Hey, you're better. You're don't, better. Don't, don't make me bust your head. exactly. And get and so Joe thanks him, saying this. You know, there's you know Joe. Yeah. You know, it looks. You know, there's this. You know, Ben Turpin, who's got this major reputation, right? I mean, this is a guy that's like, you know, these this guy. This guy is kind of crazy, right? <laughs> like, you know, he, he said like his estimate is like twenty people he's killed. You know, and it's you know, it's just like this is a guy that is like kind of running his beat. Like you right. like Turpin comes walking down the street and you don't mess with this guy you know and it's like and so 
you know, he's like a neighbor, you know, he's almost like as much of a neighborhood, you know, he's like working in the, you know, they talk about how he's like hanging out at the theater, you know, and he's like telling people, hey, put your hat on, you know, can we, you know, hurry up in that line, you drive, the line's taking too long, you know, it's like, uh-huh. you know, it's just, it's just, he's one of these interesting characters that brings a little bit of a, you know, it sort of brings some of this, you know, this, this area, you know, this Black Bottom, this Paradise Valley, brings it to life a little bit, especially as it relates to Joe, whereas Joe's about to go do something and Ben Turpin's like, no. Yeah. You're not going to. You're not going to. You're not going to go do this. You know. You're going to. You know. In the screenplay, I wrote Ben Turpin into the screenplay. Is basically him taking Joe back to his mother and saying, "Your boy's about to do something stupid tonight." You know. And instead of doing that, and then talking to Joe, saying, "You know, hey kid," you know, because he had even said in there he was talking about how you know he had these like sort of attachments to the Brewster Recreation Center, and that's kind of like we actually named this episode, you know, the Brewster because that's really where. Um, it's an important component. We're talking about Paradise Valley. You're talking about the den, the, you know, like this, you know, this, the vice, you know, this, you know, vice area element. Yeah. But this, but the Brewster Center is absolutely worth discussing because this was this, you know, this huge community center that. Um, really changed a lot of lives mm-hmm. and really i mean this is this you know really helped to change joe lewis's life and it's it's impossible to talk about the story of joe lewis without talking about the impact of him in in the world around this brewster recreation center and trying to sort of bring it to life a little bit yeah. so okay cool so the so the first sort of step you know i just want to kind of get you a little bit of an overall summary of the brewster so um as it was mentioned in there he as i was sort of tailing off in the quote there about it it was first started off as a library in the early 1900s but the library there wasn't as much need for like this little miniature library as there was for like a larger community center that could you know it could do all kinds of stuff and so they enlarged it and they put a bunch of money into it and so um you know the city did and so it so the it it opened proper on the in 1929 um and when it opened up it was this huge as you know we have a picture up in the being it's this huge building and and it had classrooms it had a swimming pool it had a boxing ring it had basketball courts um and there was a guy the the main the main guy that was like in charge of this place was a guy named leon toy wheeler and i forgot to write down the years that he was involved but it was like i mean it was like for like 30 years um they eventually changed name from the Brewer Recreation Center to the Brewer Wheeler Recreation Center because he was that important mm. for the you know the evol- you know the evolution of that place. So Leon Toy Wheeler is, so so he it was like 25 years he was there. It was from like 1920 something to 1940ish. So Leon Toy Wheeler establishes programs and so so not only do they have the facilities for it, but we but Leon Toy Wheeler actually established programs bringing in people that can like teach people that are there, you know that like in you know a Swimming classes, um, uh, boxing, track, tennis, drama, dancing—you know—all these different programs for the community to come in there and do this stuff. And so, I, I thought this was a fantastic little uh, fact. At its height, uh, when this—you know—in the twenties and you know in the thirties you know, and forties for this place, there, there was eighty-one different clubs wow. meeting in the six classrooms. Uh. Every day, wow, okay. eighty-one different clubs. Every meeting in the six classrooms every single day. I if this place will get any use. That's what I mean. Like I this was a, a, you know, it was a. So yeah, nice wrote Nineteen sixty-nine. It was renamed Brewster Wheeler Recreation Center. But but think about that. Eighty-one different clubs in that in those six okay. classrooms. You know, this is a major hub of activity. Yeah. And so Joe Lewis. So as I mentioned, Joe was like you know Joe's at Bronson Trade Trade School at this point. Um, we're talking about um, you know nineteen twenty. 29, 1930. And so Joe's about 16 years old. 
And so he's so Joe's playing baseball with the Bronson, you know, local, you know, the Bronson baseball team, and he's learning how to play soccer. And I just saw a great little story in the in in Richard's back book about how Joe would play soccer in these work boots, and like people worried about their ankles getting broke because he was getting big, and like he's going to kick a ball and he misses and kicks you in the ankle with these work boots on, he's going to break your leg, you know. <laughs> and so so anyways, so so Joe's like he's just playing sports, and so um and so uh, at one point uh, Joe is. Um, Joe is uh uh, they're 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 playing around. There's a bunch of different stories that talk about like Joe was never a violent man ever. Okay, that's what everybody. That was another thing that surprised so many people um, was that uh, uh, was that he had he was not a violent person at all. And in fact, that's going to come into play with a component of the story we're talking about. But people are like, we used to see him getting chased by neighborhood bullies. Right. Like he was not a violent man, a kid at all. Like he was like super sweet, super nice. Last person on earth that anybody would have ever expected having known him at an early age that would have ever turned into like this violent boxer. They would have never thought that. And so it was really, um, well, yeah. Well, we will get to that point. We will get to that point. Um, we will get to that point. And so, um, and so, so anyways, there's a point where, there was like there's sort of like the, again like sort of an apocryphal story where you know where they're like you know there's like this one moment where Joe put on the boxing gloves you know yeah and but but there's a couple different varieties of stories but there was this there was a there was a um they're basically like they like they would horse around at one point they got to set their hands on a set of boxing gloves some people say there were you know like Richard Back lists a few different you know versions of the stories or whatever that there was that basically like there was like a barn behind their house and the kids were messing around and he like put on box gloves and like one punch KO'd somebody like knocked somebody out with like a single punch and then his friend who his name is Thurston McKinney was like yo you know hey man you know there's you, you know you gotta get a good punch for whatever reason the conversation came up between Thurston McKinney which is his friend who um, who was boxing at the uh, Brewster Recreation Center and tells him um, you know, hey, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in boxing. And he shows him a ring magazine, which was the main boxing magazine at the time. And and he, and he shows him how even amateur fighters who were not like big names, were just little local guys. You could make like five bucks just in, in these, you know, in like a in like a, a merchandise voucher just from fighting in somebody's back room at a bar. That, that back then, yeah. in, in the throes of the Depression, yeah. it's cash. Yeah, it's like 50 bucks or something, you know. I mean, it's like 20, 30. Bucks, so it's not much, but at the same time, it's like you know, you could even for like little, you know, flea fights that are nobody cares about, you could right. still make 20, 30 bucks, you know, 50 bucks or something. And he's like, you know, in, in these like in these like merchandise vouchers and that. And so it piqued Joe's interest, and so they, and so he went to the, um, so he went to the Brewster with Thurston McKinney again, who was already sort of involved with the program, the boxing program there that was there. And Joe signed up for a class for um, with their, so that the names of the the two involved that, that taught the boxing class was uh, it was uh, Atler Kid, it was uh, Kid Ellis, Atler Kid Ellis, and uh, another guy named Holman Williams. So both these guys, so um, Atler uh, Kid Ellis was basically. Uh, uh, Toy Wheeler's like sort of right hand man, and so he taught the boxing class. And Holman Williams was like a, an actual boxer that was actually at that time like a current boxer. Like he was actually developing himself and teaching the kids how to box at the same time, making probably making a couple bucks on the side teaching them. Yeah. Um, and so Holman Williams, um, he was like a great, you know, he was actually like an up and coming boxer at the Brewster Recreation Center. 
And so this is 1930 when he joins up. And so like this is a moment like I wrote this into the, sc- the screenplay, the, the concept. And Richard Back does a fantastic job sort of setting the stage for it. This idea that, um, you know, uh, Joe Lewis at this moment is literally just a face in the crowd. You know, there's this Brewster record. You can, you know, with the right sort of pair of eyes, with the right sort of imagination, you can go back. You can look at this building. You can look at this and say this is like the inner city, black bottom Detroit. Um, you know, there's hundreds, if not, you know, I don't know, a thousand kids at this place yeah. playing basketball, boxing, swimming. You know, I mean, it's, this is ha- chaos of activity, yeah. right? Everybody's probably just jammed in there. Sure. Everybody wants to be a boxer. Everybody's hears about the money that can be made, even doing twenty bucks and stuff. And so it's just a battle. Just you know, I looked it up. Five bucks is worth a hundred bucks. Five okay. Bucks. Yeah. It's like a hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah. So. so yeah. So you know. The, so but so anyways. Yeah. So I mean, you know, even something small could be you know a little bit. A, you know, pocket change. So, um, so, anyways, yes. Yeah, so you can imagine this this room. You know, your Joe's going in there. He's a shy kid. He doesn't. You know, he's you know he's you know you know they say shy, quiet, walking in there. You know, he's not strutting in there like he's about to be the next big thing. He's it's a face in the crowd. At the same time. Oh no, wait, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no, no. no. So Joe, <laughs> but he walks into this, and so you can kind of imagine like just even going in there that it would take courage, you know. Sure. Yeah. And he's just surrounded. I mean, he's like I say, he, he's only four years removed, or you know, from being down in Buckaloo Mountain, you know, in the shadow of Buckaloo, you know, Mountain, Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, rural South, and now he's in this crazy environment with this frenetic activity. You know, and he's about to start up in a boxing class. Yeah. You know, and he's like, and he's going to get probably some big ripped dudes down there. You know, and, and he's just like, okay, I'm going to go start boxing now. You know, I'm supposed to be taking violin lessons with this. Yeah, uh, and the, yeah, and one of the sort of apocryphal components is when Thurston McKinney watches him like hit this other kid, and he's like, you need to put ditch the violin and start, you know, <laughs> picking this up. So, anyways. Um, so yeah, so um, so he so he does so uh, um, so so Joe so he so he so so at one point um, he he really starts to you know he you know at, the more he's doing with this with this Brewster group, the more he's just falling in love with boxing. Oh. And Joe, this isn't just something where Joe's like, I got to box if I want to make money. Joe actually, you know, he really he fell in love with it. He loved doing like uh, conditioning. The road work that comes with running up and down, you know, he loved the training. He loved the discipline of it. Um, he loved like the science of boxing and learning how to improve himself. He loved the competition, like the camaraderie with all the guys there. There were all sort of these young guys like him that were trying to do something. Right. And something so, positive. yeah, there's something, you know, just something. He finally found something he was kind of good at. He had a good punch. You know, he could, you know, he could slug. He had, I mean, even from an early age, he could not, you know, from his very first, you know, knock somebody down, knock somebody out, you know, and. Um, so you know that this is finally something that he's kind of good at, you know. Even if he's like super raw, and he's not—I mean, he, by no means is he any type of a, you know, mega talent at this moment. He just knows that he can. You know, he's got a solid punch. He's getting kind of big. He's got some muscle on him. Maybe this is something that he might be able to make a couple bucks. And he, but he actually enjoyed it. You see, he actually enjoyed the sport. And so, um, so anyways, um, so he quits, he talks to his mom. It's at this moment that he, you know, actually reveals this to his mom saying like, you know, I'm quitting school. I'm quitting the trade school. Um, I, I'm quitting the violin and I am, um, and I'm, you know, cause I want to become, I want to learn to become a boxer. And, <clears throat> Um, Richard Back again refer to him for this 
this, this component is that you know he's like you know he talks about how Joe's mom wasn't particularly excited about that fact that he's about to be a boxer, yeah. but she was somebody that was interested that liked the you know the discipline, the person that was disciplined, and I think that she saw in Joe what he saw, which was that it was something he was interested in and potentially good at, and something that gave him a little direction and something that made him you know that focused it you know that made him um, disciplined towards a goal, mm-hmm. and I think that that's something that you can you know that you could appreciate that you know she would say okay you know I, I trust you you're my boy and go do your thing be careful don't get you know face broke out and <laughs> um so yeah so you know this this moment he kind of tells his mom about it and um she says okay you know the violin lessons are done you know um and so joe's you know he's growing and you know he's, he's learned how to box a little bit and at one point in early 1932 so he's been really he's been doing this for a year and a half you know about a year and a half training so in early 1932 um he gets uh his first amateur fight oh and it's against a guy named uh, his name is pronounced his, it's Johnny and his last name is M I L E R and I believe it's pronounced Myler Johnny Myler. Okay. Um, and and so uh, so he fought, so Johnny Myler. This is a guy who has had twenty four amateur fights under his belt already. This is Joe's very first like proper amateur fight that he's ever done. Okay, and so um, so he is he, Joe is one hundred and fifty four pounds. He is listed as a light heavy. Heavyweight, and this is what he fought at for most of his early years was a light heavyweight because he wasn't like super big, so he, but he was big enough to be considered like one tier down from the top. So he's listed as a, so he fights as a light heavyweight, and he fights this first um, fight against Johnny Myler, and Joe was knocked down seven times, Oops. seven times, and so it's just basically hey, a, and. He got up. Well, he got up and he finished the fight on his feet, but he took a beating because okay. <laughs> Johnny Myler was good, like real good. And he was a, te- you know, he was a technician. You know, he's a, you know, this is a guy that's got a veteran of, um, and so and so Johnny and uh, um, and Johnny Myler went on to like the Olympics and like he had a he had a semi decent career. Mm-hmm. So he was a good fighter. And Joe was just literally just a, a punch of a fighter. Like he was just know how to punch, and he was just at the very very infancy of what he would become. And so yes. Yeah, so he was knocked down seven times, and as a result, so Johnny Myler got twenty five bucks for the fight. Joe Lewis got seven bucks, yeah. a seven dollar merchandise check. You want to put that to your to your scanner to see how much it was I worth? Am. It was like twenty thirty bucks back then, you know. No, it's 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 probably a hundred. Oh, you said five was like was a hundred. Yeah. Okay. Um. Seven bucks. It's uh, you said five was a hundred. Okay, oh, that's not too bad then, I guess. Um, so, anyways, but it's still. But the main thing was is that his, you know, this, this, you know, there's, uh, you know, you can't ever read into somebody's mind, and there wasn't too much of a, I don't think, a deep dive into this component, but. This, you know, the sort of illusion I think that Richard Back makes, and one that we can appreciate too, especially kind of, you know, what the events that came next, was that this kind of, you know, took the wind out of his sails a little oh. bit. His first amateur fight, and he basically just got pummeled, right? right, right? right. And so, yeah, so, um, and so it was, it was actually during, like, right around this time during this fight that that his name was that he dropped the barrel from his name, at least for the boxing purposes, mm-hmm. and started just be going as Joe Lewis. And so there's, of course, rampant speculation as to why. And the, one of the, the very first legend of the story is is that um, it was that so that his mom wouldn't find out that he was boxing. That's yeah. the most obvious example of why Joe Lewis's name was shortened from Barrel to Lewis. And so, 
you know, it just there's you know who knows how, who, the, the more people we talk to about the story, right. the more people that are probably going to actually say that's why he changed his name. So, well, but the thing about it is, right at this moment is yeah. when his mom was already finding out about yeah. it. So how you know right. was he really trying well, to hide we'll it? We'll have to talk to Joe. Exactly. That's, that's he's a perfect person to so, talk to. Yeah, yes, that's, that's on tap. We're going to talk. Perfect to, uh, person to talk Joe to. Yes. Maybe we can clarify uh, that because it's by JoJo. And, yeah. Uh, just opened a kitchen, a, a, a restaurant here in Detroit. Joe yeah. Joe's Southern Kitchen. Yeah. It's right on Woodward. Um, it's only open from it's it's a, a breakfast brunch kind of place. It's, yeah. it's only open till I think uh, three or four or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's like a it's a breakfast brunch kind of place. Really, really good. They got this uh, uh, like this chicken leg. The turkey, like a not chicken leg, turkey leg. Turkey leg. It's like my favorite things in the world, man. But it's like covered in like mac and cheese. What? Oh my god! I've never had that. I've had turkey legs across the world, but I haven't had it. No, it's a turkey leg. It's they do this crazy. But now with some macaroni on it, man, next level. Yeah. Amazing food there, right on Woodward. uh, Just uh, they should sell those things at. Do they? Do they sell those at like events and stuff? Like some of the music festivals? I mean, I know it's new, so there hasn't been too many of them. But this is their first. They need to take that out for like street food. Like launched. I mean, it just. Well, they. It's if I talk to him. I mean, that's. He's. He's got. I mean, because. That's what turkey legs. Turkey legs are ideal for that street food where you're just selling turkey legs to people. Those things they'd be selling. To, you know, they'd be selling those all because there's right around the corner. There's the the uh, there's the dally in the alley. There's like there's all these different like uh, shows, jazz uh, festivals and stuff. Um, anyway, but so anyways, yes. Talk to JoJo. Exactly. That's a perfect person name. Yeah. So the so the you know the the more the more the sort of like the more just like obvious reason or one of the you know the reason. Uh, a solid reason, you know, is that it was just a shorter name to write down for the paperwork. <laughs> I mean, it could, it's just it could be as something as basic yeah. and simple as that. Um, you know, Joe Lewis sounds like a little more of a condensed boxing name, but at the same time, he's so early in his career. Would he really be like, oh, Joe Lewis is such a, you know, that's a kind of a big deal. Like, remove your last name, you know, like mm-hmm. and say, oh, well, this is a more condensed boxing name. Like, you know, that's what I'm saying. It will be that will be a good question, but it's at this moment, anyways, that that's when this starts to evolve. That's when he starts to just go by Joe Lewis in the boxing ring. So anyway, so following this defeat to to Johnny Myler, um, Joe takes a job at uh, Briggs Auto Body, and, uh, and and he takes a job um, in this in this auto body factory, just doing like this grueling work, like pushing auto body chassis to get them painted, and it's like this hot, you know, really brutal job. And so um, and it's and so he's like, <clears throat> that's what I'm saying, like the kind of results after like. I think that his boxing sort of slowed down a little bit while he focused on work. Cause, I mean, how can you focus on boxing as much when you're working these brutal jobs where you're just going home and you're just, you know, going home just to get enough sleep for the next day? You know, it's just, and so, but it's at this moment that um, his two friends, the, the one friend that kind of encouraged him in the beginning, which was Thurston McKinney, and also, um, uh, you know, Thurston McKinney and, and another guys, you know, the, the original, uh, the, um, uh, uh, Holman Williams are saying, "Hey, man, you got to come back. You know, this is you're you're good. You know, we know you took a beating in the first one, but uh, you're good. You know, you got some talent. And so they're they're you know encouraging him to stick with it and come back. And so he ends up coming back and he fights again. <clears throat> he fights a second amateur fight against a guy named uh, Otis Thomas, mm-hmm. and he pounds this guy. Oh. And so this kind of revigorates his his um you know his enthusiasm for it. And then this fight, so he keeps on fighting these little amateur bouts, and he wins." 13 more Whoa. in a row. So in every one of these fights are knockouts. These are not just like little powder puff point victory type things. 
These are all knockouts. He he's knocking these guys out. Okay. Yeah. And so this, this so Decisive this is a victory. Yeah. So these are component. This so this this idea is what is going to sort of be Joe's defining characteristic of his entire career. Right. And it's and this is something that it's important to understand about him going for all the rest of the stories that we're talking about going forward is is that the is that this is what would make this is what would be the the opportunity for him the, at the very center of all the different things that revolving around him okay his losses and he's going to lose again see here in a second we'll talk about it the the, the negative things are you know the obstacles that are overcome the one singular sort of like center the foundation of what he of the opportunities that he's going to get yeah is the power that he's got in his fists okay. because this man is an absolute knockout artist mm-hmm. okay in the in like all like in right now and at this point in his career he is raw he is as raw as you get but if he gets his hands on you you're done okay <laughs> but the problem is that other fighters know this and so they're dancing around they're winning on points they're you know they're you know Johnny Myler's case he was able to knock down knock Joe down you know quite a few times but as you know but he's improving and he's constantly Constantly improving, and so the more impact, the better trainers he's going to get that teach him the science of boxing. The more that that knockout power is going to be refined, and it's going to be like you know when when he gets to the point where Joe is is like just a tactician in the ring, that's what's going to change him into the one of the greatest fighters, if not the greatest boxer that ever lived, is because he he always had the knockout power. But the problem was that you know especially early on was that these other but like he you know he was. You know, his he didn't. You know, the 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 scientific components, the footwork wasn't there. The the jabs and the different, you know, the setups things that you need in order to be a successful boxer for a you know for a profession. All these other guys had all those things, but you know, but the more as we're going to see, the more he learns these skills, the more he is just going to become like the greatest boxer of all time. You see that, that statue downtown. Is just that forearm in the fist. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like it was the it was that knockout power. What was going? To, you know, that's the that's the central core component of everything. And there's other things that are gonna you know that's gonna tie in with it. But it but but it's at this moment that we're seeing this. Like so he's so he's got yeah, that's his signature. That's his signature. Is the knockouts? Is the is it the brute? Is like these you know these these knockouts. So anyways, um. So, so at this moment, so he, like I say, we've got these two guys teaching him, like this kid Ellis and uh, Holman Williams. But, uh, but what's what, what's also emerging is, and that's why I called this entire episode the Brewster, right. because what's coming out, of, what's happening at the Brewster now is just a fascinating story. And I really encourage anybody to really get Richard back again does a phenomenal job on this, um, and uh, that he talks about this idea that that this that this whole group there was it wasn't just Joe yeah. at the Brewster at this point. Joe was one amongst many there's a bunch of different guys who were all they were all good there was like six or seven guys that were just tremendous boxers in this era and Joe like the Richard Beck has quotes about these other boxers where um he's talking about these guys and he's saying um you know like the, the other boxers like at the time Joe wasn't even the best guy at the Brewster mm. he wasn't even any he was like I mean he was good he was a he was a prospect but he's like but we were all prospects and and there was other guys that literally that like were we all looked at as better than Joe as a potential pro, you know, future pro. But at the same time, 
it was this very it was it was an era it was a you know sort of a a, a class of boxers they were all you know sort of around the same age they were all teaching each other how to get better they were sparring against each other they were all um they were you know they were all learning you know they were all teaching each other fighting against each other and all improving at sort of the same time and that in in um in, and there was a definitive style that came, that was in this uh, that was that that was in this uh, that was coming out of Detroit. That was coming out of the Brewster Center, okay. and it's and it was called the Detroit style, and it was all geared on the left. Like you're like you know that a lot of people are right-handed, so it's the right, which is the sort of power punch. But in this, but the but it, the Detroit style was the use of the left, mm. it, the use of the left, like the like the jab, like the you know the, the you know, like a lot of times when a boxer is lined up, it's the jab that sort of sets up the right in this right, mm. and so the and so that's but in this case. You know the, the the you know this uh, at least the Brewster style specifically was the left jab, the right, the right, uh, the you know the right, and then a left hook. That was the you know like this combination that like finished with the left, and so. Um, but the but a but the but the Detroit style in general, but if you like the Detroit style was so called because you were good with your left in general, you were good with it. Whether it was the jab, whether it was the cro- the hook, whether it was the cross, whatever it was, and that wasn't common among. Boxers. Well, the, the people use the left. Yeah. It's not like they just didn't. They only use the right. Yeah. You know what I mean? They always use. Everybody used their left. Sure, sure, sure. But it was like it was. But it was their definitive thing right. that like it's not Detroit style unless you're good with it. Right. Unless you're real good with it. So they spent a lot of time developing that left as like their signature thing. And you know, like I say, there's you know, I haven't really looked into New York style and Chicago style. Maybe they'll use their left too. Maybe that was a good thing. You know, they think. <laughs> but but they but they viewed it, and it's not just Richard Back that says that I've seen this all over the place that this idea of the Detroit style was you know the usage of the left and, and not just like good at it but like you were almost defined by how good you were with it I think that's more I think that's a, 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 a that's why they called it that was like they all judged each other based on how good each other was with that left you see what I'm saying like how they could use it to set up the right or how the you know the right could set up a left you know what I mean like whatever it was but that left it was so whenever that left came out to be effective you can you can almost Imagine, like, oh damn, he caught him with that left hook, you know, that left, that Detroit left, you know, like you can see that it, you know, it just became that thing, you know, that that. Uh, it, but it, but it, like I say, but with these guys all, you know. All these guys um, that were sort of part of this, and I'll, I just want to read off a few of their names because yeah. I got these guys. Yeah. So you've got, so I just have a list here: notable Brewster boxers. Um, so you got, we mentioned Holman Williams, we mentioned Thurston McKinney. Both these guys were uh, Gold Gloves. We're going to talk about the Detroit Gold Gloves here in a second, but both these guys are Gold Glove champions: Clinton Bridges, Curtis Ship, Eddie Futch. Um, Eddie Futch, Eddie Futch would go. He was a Gold Glove champion. He would end up going on to be uh, the trainer of Joe Frazier. Oh, wow. One of is you know Joe is a tremendous famous boxer um, Dave Clark uh, who was one of the end up be one of the champions of 35 in addition to Joe he was like an uh, AAU champion uh, Lorenzo Pack and uh, uh, MC Rins- Rinson uh, Walt, uh, a guy named Walter Smith, These who guys are all coming out of the Brewster. all coming out of the Brewster, and Walter Smith would end up becoming the trainer for Tommy Hearns. Okay. You know what I mean? It's like not only were they good, but they would have major impact on boxing. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, another guy named Walk, uh, Walker Smith, who was only a child at this moment, but as Joe started to sort of pick up steam and getting knockouts, he had his own little follow, his own little cult following of younger kids that were at the gym. And this is one of these younger kids that was at the gym at this moment, mm. and he would like carry Joe's bags for. 
for him, like to the to the. I mean, Joe was a nobody at this point, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he and he's got a he's got a you know he's got a a fan you know and this yeah, little yeah. kid from the neighborhood and this kid Walker Smith he would move out of Detroit five six you know a couple three years after this and move out to the um, Harlem in New York where he would become Sugar Ray Robinson oh. who was who was some people say is the greatest boxer who ever lived as far as pound for pound right. Sugar Ray Robinson was a tremendous fighter yeah. um, and so and that was who was carrying Joe's baby I mean, he was at the Brewster seeing Joe right. you see what I'm saying like this is this is this era that I mean this is a trip this is like a golden era for this place and so um and, and the guy that as we're, we're going to talk about him more in the next episode a guy named Stanley Evans who has really become Joe's nemesis in this um who's like going to come out of this is like there's two like you know Joe's going to Joe and Stanley Evans are the two big names that are going to sort of like emerge out of this um and they're going to battle it out for you know who's the number one guy from the Brewster that's what you know we're just going to get into that uh, next episode but uh, another little random fact that I saw when I was putting these notes together was that the Harlem Globetrotters played their first road game in, in uh, ever at the Brewster in 1932 on the basketball courts at, at the Brewster. Nice. Harlem Globetrotters started out there. I mean, did this, like, is there? I mean, you this is a yeah, well, yeah, but this was a road game. First road game, road game yeah, yeah. yeah. Their first wow. road game is at the Brewster in Detroit. Nice. Like, I mean, that's how influential this building is. I mean, this is this is the echo of, you know, thousands of voices. And, you know, this is this yeah. is history right here. This is boxing history par excellence. I mean, you know, this, this if the walls another, could talk. It's another one of those things about Detroit. And it's like, you know, people are just like, oh, I, I can't wait to go. I get out of here. And I'm like, go. Yeah, this I is. I mean, there's the. I mean, the the voices of this play. I mean, it's the 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 you know the ghosts, the voices, the you know the stories that come out of that place. It's you could do for so many absolutely music, cars, boxing, uh, it just. Uh, but if the walls could talk, you know, yeah. if the walls could talk, what would they say about this era? And that's what I'm saying. Like that's why it's. That's why I love being having a chance to do this show and to kind of isolate you know, these moments because this all we're talking about right here would just be a one minute, uh, a thirty second, not even ten second mention in a documentary. Hey, you, you, you know, get all those guys' names. No, yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. You know, and that's what I'm saying. Like, and it's cool because this is the era that Joe. Don't, this is you know, and to to skip over this, to brush over this, isn't just some ancillary fact. This is the foundation of Joe's career. Mm-hmm. Was being like the you know from the moment he walks in these doors. And he's just just the, having the guts to walk in. And I've been there. I'm I, I, my whole life growing up. I was always I was always, I, like every two years we moved to a different city. And I and I specifically remember my first day walking onto a football team. I'd really never even played football before, and I'm walking into a new school. You know, I felt like I was, you know, I wasn't the biggest guy in the world. And I'm walking on, you know, I, I you know, I'd never played football before. Uh, somebody from the school said, hey, I think I told my mom, hey, your son should go out for the football team. You know, I'm walking on this football field. I never really, you know, I've played a little bit of backyard football, but I've never played like with pads on, stuff like this. And you're walking out there and there's this huge group of guys and there's a lot of them, half of them are older than you. They're all smashing each other and you're like, God, where am I at? You know? And so, you know, for anybody that's been in that situation that you're new and a new team, which I'm sure that almost everybody's been in that spot and that's what Joe's walking into. And, but, and then, and then, you know, from that, you know, initial era, he's, he becomes part of something and part of like sort of a golden era of boxing of these up and comers that are all that are all coming up at this exact same moment. So I just think it's a fascinating, like sort of a you know a little bit of a deep dive into um, into you know into the like you know his you know where he comes from. Yeah. And so you know of course he's 
poor as a church mouse. Yeah. This is a guy that like his boxing gloves are are like tatters. You know, he's wearing shoes that are rags. You know, they, they there's a talk. Uh, Richard Beck talks about how there's a quote in there where Joe said like the only meat they ever ate was hot dogs. Well, that's all they had. They never. That's the only meat they knew growing up was hot dogs. They never had anything else. Like that was literally it. I mean, that's all they had. You know, hot dogs and maybe some ice cream every once in a great while as a treat. But you know, he's you know he's in you know he's doing road work in raggedy shoes, boxing with raggedy gloves. You know, they all had nothing. This is the middle of the Great Depression, so um, you can just kind of get this here. I mean, it's like uh, it kind of it's a little bit reminiscent of Rocky, where you know it's this sweaty gym. Yeah. Nobody, you know, everybody's wearing raggedy shirts. You know, they're just punching each other and stuff. You know, it's a it's a great little. I never brought up the uh, black bottom man. Well, this will so yeah. So uh, we'll get that. We'll finish. Yeah, we'll finish up with all with all the, those pictures there. Um, I've had the picture of the first. Oh, have you? Okay, good. Okay, we'll get to it. It'll, it'll flow in. You know, so we'll we'll finish off the entire thing with that. Yeah. Well, yeah. The time flies in here, and you know. Um, so, um, so, anyways, just to kind of wrap it up. So, like, we're gonna sort of finish off with this. Uh, um, we're gonna talk about the. To, we're gonna finish off with. You know what? We're at an hour. I'll, we'll finish. We'll, we'll start. I'll start with this next week. We'll okay. talk about the well, where Joe's going. Gloves, yeah. Right? Well, yeah. We'll start off with the Golden Gloves because it actually there's it's it's in a little bit of a longer story and right. um, we can incorporate this in. It, no one needs to rush through this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, we'll talk about the map now. We'll leave, we'll finish right, off with this. Yeah. So I well I have the map because it gives an idea of where the sort of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley area were in Detroit oh, for people that we were talking right, about so it. Off the Grand yes, yes. And so and so if, when the highways came in, when specifically 75, right. those highways sliced right through it. Mm-hmm. And so they tore up that area and, and you know chunked it up so that that area because a lot of people say I've seen I was watching a couple of videos today about it. It they were talking about the you know the sadness of that of the destruction of this of these areas because it could be like a modern day Bourbon Street, like this modern day, like you know, with this you know this legacy of this black community that was there for so long right. that it you know the the, the memories of, of it. There were some. Nice architecture. Oh, and destroyed the too. the video Amazing. the videos that I saw these interviews with former residents of Black Bottom from the 30s and 40s. You know, there's this there's this initial presumption that this is like a horrific it's ghetto. It's a yeah, it's like yeah. shacks, horrific ghetto, toilet, little dump or whatever like this. But but their memories were all like this was the coolest place, man. Like everybody knew each other. It was you know there was yeah there was this the the the, the, the Paradise Valley was a vice, but it was also home to some of the greatest like energy entertainers like the biggest names in the country when they would come like jazz and all these different like you know musicians were coming through they were playing in paradise valley like it wasn't just you know it wasn't just a still to today uh, the second largest theater district outside of new york city is, is in detroit yeah well this we but, second, yeah we have the second largest theater really i didn't know that no that's yeah, yeah. but it currently we have yeah. But but so one that's what was kind of one of the cool things was is that this Paradise Valley it wasn't just this like den of villainy with like where no respectable person would go there. In fact, a lot of respectable people went there because it was like oh, because yeah, but well they, because it was like because they because it was a little bit of an outlaw area. So it was like so you would have a little bit more, you know, some of the, you know, some of the more edgier performances and there was therefore it was kind of hip. It was kind of like the kind of the place to be, you know. And so and that's what I mean. So a lot of so you 
anybody that is that's listening to this, if you have this a chance, parallel to the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, yeah. It's so the poetry and there's a ton of great material. If you go on, you know, YouTube is full of all these different interviews and videos with like remembering Paradise Valley, remembering Black Bottom Detroit, and and a lot of their memories are like it was like the coolest place, and then what a tragedy it was that the highway when they built 75 ran right through it and carved up this this district, and so that and so there's actually uh, components of you know people trying to bring it back some of these some of these elements of it and that's why I have this other picture which is is showing um, the current uh, Brewster Recreation Center yeah, and yeah well if you look at this picture there's a there's an effort because it's just dude it's been stripped out by the copper's been stripped out of the walls everything's been torn out of this building it's just yeah. a sh- I mean it's completely covered in spray paint yeah. the interior every nook and cranny is covered with spray paint it's, a, it, it's just it's a, a shell it's a sh- yes, but if you see this photo here, there's actually been a you know a little bit of a movement. I saw another article from 2019 of uh, of some people trying to make some headways into it. But if you look at that bottom picture of this thing where they're talking about sinking 50 million investment, in, do you recognize the guy at the podium? No, who's that? It's Joe Jr. It's just a small picture, I know, but he's but he was there with Duggan and these talking about renovating this Brewster Recreation Center. Is that recently? Yeah, well that that was from 2015. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but this so Joe Jr. That's what's kind of surprising because he gave a speech at this thing. That's okay. so I want to talk to him about his you know involvement in this whole thing. Yeah. Because imagine, I mean, because just I mean, just think about like if like you know I when I first moved to Detroit. I had this. I, you made, can, I made him cry last time. Did you? Yeah. Well, when I first talking about his dad, and he ended up. We, and we were talking because we were at talk, we were at the. It's it's on. If anybody if anybody rolls back, if you missed that, I put it out as a, a video episode. So Facebook or YouTube, it's there for your. But for the bourbon, for the no, bourbon. No, I put it up on City of Champions. Oh, did you? Okay, good. It's there. So um, I, we sat down with him at the restaurant, talked about the restaurant, was talking about his dad. You know, and, and why it was important, and, and, and the family, and the legacy, and everything. Yeah. And he got, he was like, he got all choked up, but he was. Crying. I'm sure, you know, like, yeah. It's like, don't, don't make JoJo cry. <laughs> yeah, but I'm so, just, so, but his dad was a great guy. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. what I'm saying. You look at these things. You, you know, you look at the, when you when you look at the sort of sum total of Joe's life. He was a, like one of his biggest, the one of the biggest issues that he had. Was that he was he was so generous? Yeah. He gave away his money, like he gave, like you know, he oh, yeah. gave it all away. Like yeah. he was like the amount of people that he helped, the amount of people that he helped grow, you know, as he went on through his life was astonishing. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's this, 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 I have all these quotes in my book, but there's many others where it's like examples of Joe, like, um, like at Christmas he would stand on the street, he would have like these little envelopes with a bank account number. Already, there's like he would set up like a hundred bank accounts. And then in the envelope, there was like a bank account number and a quarter. And then he would give the envelopes to these kids on the street corner for Christmas and with the quarter that they had to go and put the quarter in their bank account to get it going. And that's how they would start their first bank account was the 25 cents Joe gave them. You know, like, I mean, it's stuff like that. It's like these are these people that give back to the community. In a legitimate way, like that's just one example. Like he, there was so many people he gave money to for starting businesses. I mean that, like you know, eventually he the taxes from giving all this money away. Like he was, you know, he earned this money, gave it away, and then have to pay taxes on it and have the money to pay it. Yeah, and so he would give on to this cycle where he would have to go box for again and box more and more and more, and then eventually the you know the money ran out, the the fight sort of ended, and it was and he still owed all this money. So and I, so I was talking about uh, I put the logo up, I grabbed it uh, the the. the uh, Southern Kitchen, Joe Lewis Southern Kitchen. Um, I threw the I threw the logo out there. I, I pulled it down. Um, 
So yeah, so we're gonna talk to JoJo. Yeah, but I, but but can you imagine like you know this you know they got the Brush Park going, which is a sort of an area nearby there. This yeah. is right next to Ford. If you can't see it, yeah. it's the 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 Brewster is is right is you know is very nearby like Ford Field. It's just north of Ford Field. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I just when I first breathe life back into the train station. Yeah. Um, you know, there's uh, there, there's a lot of stuff. Happening. Well, yeah, there's and they the, like the what they were talking about for this. I saw a 2019 article where there was people talking about um, uh, renovating it, using it for like turning it into a restaurant with an actual little bit of a community center part of it, and like a sort of a signature, like a key component. But like I say, when I first moved to Detroit. Man, I had a vision that this city was going to come back and go do all this great stuff, and I'm still optimistic, man. You know, it's um, in like stuff like that. You know, it's yeah, just just thinking about all the incredible things that happened at this that this Bruce, Brewster Recreation Center and the idea that it could make a comeback. You know, I mean, it's 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 absolutely fitting with the motto Detroit. You know, from the ashes, you know, we will rise. I mean, that's literally the the motto of Detroit. Yeah. And um, and you know, and it's like what a better example, a testament to that idea than if. Um, uh, something like that happened with the Brewster because like I mean it, you know the state of it the, at least the photos I've seen of it it's it's for what it used to be and for what it was and for the impact that it had mm-hmm. it's just a, it's 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 sad right. it's flat out sad it's just an abs it's just completely it's been stripped of all of its copper it's it's just completely <laughs> covered head to toe there's not another inch of space inside the building without graffiti on it and even the the image of Joe Lewis has got a Somebody spray painted on his arm like a tattoo. It says "Mom" on it with a heart and stuff. Like you know, it's. I mean, at least they didn't spray his face out or something. But um, you know, the entire place is completely covered. Out, you know, outside is a little bit better, but there's still it's all there's graffiti all over the walls. The basketball courts, the outdoor tennis courts, and basketball are all tore up. You know, it's like. But what you know, like I just think that it's it's something that you know the last mention I saw of reno- renovating with two thousand was two thousand nineteen and um, in two thousand fifteen there's so supposedly there was some city grant money towards go towards it. But if there could get use out of it, it wouldn't have to be like a donation going towards it. It could you know it could, it could be used as a crown jewel of a you know of of people that were actually going to use it. Right. It would actually become a financially viable because it'd be like you know it produced money or you would actually have actual value and actually have you know it wouldn't. Just just be like a cherry case, and that's my hope. That's my overall hope with Detroit and everything is that people it becomes like an you know an actual place where people use stuff like that again. You know. All right, man. We're gonna continue on. Lots and lots more to do with Joe Lewis. <gasps> yeah. Lots and lots more to do with uh, the 1935. Tons more. Yeah. And uh, Detroit, the city of champions, of podcast. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we'll do it again uh, very very soon. Put them up. Put them up. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, Jamie. Hit it. You timed it perfect. <laughs>